Thanks. Uh, Good morning, everybody. I'm going to begin with prayer, so uh, let's pray together. Our loving Father, we thank you for the wonderful riches of your word, and we pray that as we come to these hugely significant verses this morning, that you would uh, help us to understand and, and cherish your promises, that you are a God who makes them and that you are a God that keeps them. Father, please strengthen our faith this morning and then help us to know what it means to live in light of it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, first of all, I'd like to make a shout out to our friends down at uh, City North Church in Hobart who are joining us this morning because you've gone into a a snap lockdown. Um, And all I can say is we feel your pain. Um, We know what you're going through. I hope you have a good time and are having a good time with us this morning. Now, I'm sure most of you have heard of the celebrity chef, Jamie Oliver. Well, I was reading recently about his backstory, and it's actually quite interesting. Uh, It seems that Jamie Oliver started off just as one chef among many. He was doing his thing when one day a TV crew turned up to the restaurant that he was working in as a part of a reality TV show that they were doing. Now, the producer of the show had another project um, that he was working on and he, there's something about Jamie that just sort of stood out to him and, and, uh, and he thought, he's just the guy to do it. And he said to Jamie Oliver, how would you like your own show? It was the opportunity of a lifetime. Well, Oliver seized his moment, he left, he did the show and the rest, of course, is history. You know, sometimes we're presented with the opportunity of a lifetime a ladder of opportunity, a moment of decision that will change the very direction that your life is headed in. Life, you see, is like a game of snakes and ladders. Most of the time it seems that we're just moving one square at a time in the same direction, but occasionally opportunities present themselves. Some are like the ladders that instantaneously move us forward to a better position on the board, And others are like the snakes, things we do, decisions that we make that send us sliding backwards. Some ladders are bigger than others, some snakes are bigger than others. But if you want to win the game, you need to land on the ladders, you need to avoid the snakes. Where life is different though, is that the true victory line is a lot further away than we think it is. The whole board is covered in snakes And there is only one ladder. And that's what the beginning of Genesis has shown us. Genesis 1 to 11 that we looked at last week is is like the scene setter before a movie so that we can understand God's great work to save humanity. And so in a series of snapshots, Genesis 1 to 11 shows us that while uh, humanity began at the very top of the board, we've all taken a ride on a snake and that ride takes us right to the bottom of a board that is impossibly large and that unfortunately is where we stay as we step on snake after snake after snake. It's what Peter Jensen described in his talk last week as the mighty failure. Humanity's sin looks like it's irredeemable, looks like it's complete if there is any hope, all that we know is that it's, it's not going to rest with humanity because the first 11 chapters of Genesis show that we're complete duds and I think when we reflect upon it and we know how we, how we fail, we, we know that that's true as well. If there's going to be any hope, 
It's going to rest on the graciousness of God's character. And indeed, that is where hope is found. In Genesis 12, we see that God steps in and he brings a ladder. But before we get to chapter 12, this section of Genesis actually begins at the end of chapter 11 and the story of a man named Terah. Now, we'll say a little bit more about this in tomorrow's um, Sermon Seasonings podcast, where we're also going to have a look at the second half of chapter 12, about when Abram and Sarai go down to Egypt. But the words that commence 11.27 are very important words in the book of Genesis. This is the account of Terah's family line. Now, in Genesis, every time that phrase, this is the account of, occurs... It signals a new stage in human history. So it turns up at the beginning of the Eden story in chapter 2, where the Lord creates the first man and the woman. It turns up at the beginning of chapter 5, when Adam's descendants are listed. It turns up in chapter 6, at the beginning of the story about Noah. The beginning of the story of his son spreading throughout the world after the flood. And it turns up specifically with the line of Shem, in chapter 11, verse 10, Shem, whose descendants would become the Semitic people, it comes from his name. Shem, of whom Noah himself said back in chapter 9, verse 26, praise be to Yahweh, to the Lord, the God of Shem. And now we get the same significant phrase and it's used of Terah's line. The next great stage, in other words, of the human story is going to begin with this man's family. Have a look at verse 27. Terah, we're told, he's got three sons, Abram, Nahor and Haran. Now, Haran dies fairly early on, but not before he's got a son, Lot, and two daughters, Milcah and Iscah. So, Terah then does the good fatherly thing and he goes, finds um, wives for his two other sons, Abraham and Nahor, or Abram and Nahor. Abram's wife is Sarai and Nahor's wife is Haran's daughter, Milcah. In other words, Nahor's own niece. Now, if you think that sounds dodgy, you ain't seen nothing yet. You just wait for the chapters that are going to follow in future weeks and it'll make the paint peel. Now, when genealogies like this one, when they stop and they stop to make a comment, it is invariably significant. And verse 30 is super important. We're told that Sarai is unable to conceive children. Now, this is a family line. This is a pretty big problem in the list of someone's family line. This is humanity's next great beginning. But Sarai's childlessness seems to put a great big stopper on Terah's family line ever being continued through Abram. We're also not told of any sons of Nahor at this point, and Haran is dead. So all of the hope at this stage seems to be pointing in Lot's direction. All right, well, that's the family tree, but what is Terah's story? Well, Terah's own story is actually not that spectacular. You could sum it up by saying that it is, let's say, fairly pedestrian. He takes his family on a walk. 
Have a look at verse 31. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. Now, what we need to understand about Ur is that Ur was one of the most famous cities of the ancient world. It was like a New York, a London, a Tokyo of the ancient Near East, a place of fame, a place of history. Canaan, by contrast, well, look, it had some well-established cities by this time, but it was not even in the same league as Mesopotamia, where Ur was, the land between the great Tigris and Euphrates rivers, a place that's known... Um, nowadays, as the cradle of civilization. Now, at this stage, we don't know why Terah decided to uproot his family and leave for Canaan, but we do know that he never made it there. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. Now, Haran was at the northern end of Mesopotamia. Its name means main road, in Assyrian and it appears that when the time came to leave that road and head west and go over to Canaan, Terah's resolve failed. He settles in Haran and many decades later he dies there. But the account of his family line has a long way to go. But before we take up the story, I thought I'd make some very important points right at the beginning of our series on Abraham. Abraham is considered a hugely significant figure in three of the world's great religions, Judaism, Christianity and Islam. The problem is, this very same fame can prevent us from seeing who Abraham really was and from actually listening to what Genesis is going to be teaching us. What we need to do to begin this series is demystify Abraham. So firstly, we need to realise that Abram, or Abraham as he would become, began as an ethnic Aramean, that's kind of like a Syrian, whose home was the very pagan, moon god-worshipping city of Ur, itself famous for a a Tower of Babel-like ziggurat that you can still see the ruins of today, they kind of look like massive square wedding cakes. In fact, do you know that the names Sarai and Milcah are both named after the daughter and the wife of the moon god? Abram was not raised as a follower of the Lord, but as a pagan. And he had lived a long pagan life before he had ever even heard of Yahweh. And unlike with Noah, who we're told back in Genesis chapter 6, stood out from all of the people around him because he was a righteous man, we're not told that about Abram. Abram didn't stand out at all. He's just the son of terror. Secondly, we need to remember that none of the Bible's been written yet. There is so much that God has not yet revealed about himself. There is no Jewish law, there are no Jews at all, in fact, and there are no scriptures to read and to base your life upon. There is no history of the Lord's dealings with his people to learn from. So, in other words, things that we take for granted, he didn't have the benefit of. Abram is right at the beginning of that story. 
And so what that means is that from the beginning we need to reset our expectations of him. In other words, don't expect as we read these chapters to be hearing about some aged holy man whose life and words are always sagely and, and, and noble. And don't judge him by the standards of our time either, or of later times, as if he should have instinctively known what we know now, or even what the Israelites should have known when they turned up. Abram does some seriously impressive things in his life, but he also does some seriously questionable things as well. The truth about Abram, and I want to say the powerful truth about Abram, is that he was just a guy with flaws like the rest of us. And God just says to him, you're it, mate. God did not pluck him out of obscurity because of his worth, but it is an act of undeserved grace. Straight away, we realise that this ladder, this rescue plan for humanity is not one of human making. It is entirely God's doing. What made Abram great was not his own character, but the character of the God who called him. A God who Abram is now going to meet. And this encounter begins with a command. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. Now, can I say, these are extraordinarily important verses. Notice the serious nature of God's command. Go, he says. In the original, it reads, leave by yourself. God is after a new beginning with this man. He's to leave his country. He's to leave his people. He's to leave even his father's house. Leave your Leave your, leave your. And where is he to go? To a land he hasn't even seen. Go to the land I will show you, God says. See, it's it's an uncompromising call. It's abrupt. It's calling for drastic measures. It's big. God is calling Abram to leave behind all his worldly ties the things that bind him to a place or a people, the things that up until now have defined him. He's to become a new people, a new nation chosen by God. But if God's command seems big, and it is, the promise that accompanies that command is much bigger. First of all, there is the implied promise of the land that's there in in verse 1. In other words, God isn't showing Abram the land just because the view is nice. Say, I'm coming out to check out this place down in Canaan, it's really lovely. No, the land that God will show him is the place where God intends Abram to stay. You go, God commands, but I will, God promises. And the promise gets bigger. Have a look at verses 2 and 3. If life is like snakes and ladders, well, this ladder ladder that God is presenting Abram is starting to look really big. 
Now, Genesis 3 to 11 seemed like it was all curse, didn't it? This promise to Abram is that he will bring the opposite. Blessing, 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 blessing. And he's going to receive it in abundance. Kind of like if you think about a stone on a pond, the blessing will expand out from Abram to the far reaches of the earth. Look at the first half of verse 2. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. Now, the first part of this promise is personal. God's going to make a great nation from Abram. Now, that itself is remarkable because remember what we heard at the end of chapter 11. His wife can't have children and yet here it is. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. His progeny won't consider themselves the descendants of Terah or Peleg or Shem but of Abram. He will be the father of a nation and not just any struggling state, a great nation. On top of this, Abram himself will be greatly blessed by God. He's going to become someone who seems to be, by all of the people around him, to be conspicuously favoured by God with long life, with wealth. Then in the second half of verse 2, the ripples spread wider I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Now, we can't miss this one coming so soon after the Tower of Babel. If you're not familiar with this, go back and and read it in chapter 10. At, At Babel, you see, humanity in its arrogance rebelled and built a city and tower in order that they might make a name for themselves. Well, here God says, no, Abram, I will make your name great you won't make your name great, I will do it. You will have glory but it won't come from your own strength, it will be because I am with you. You see, a name was tied to someone's reputation. So, for instance, in other parts of the Bible, the Lord speaks of his concern for his own great name, his reputation. Well, here God's promise is that Abram's name would be considered great by others. No, it's he's not going to be an insignificant nomad that, is die, that dies and is forgotten, but a great man of renown. In fact, Abram's greatness would be such that his name would be used as a blessing by other people. Notice that, and you will be a blessing. People will say to bless one another, may you be like Abram. But the ripples go further. Look at the beginning of verse 3. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. So God's blessing to Abram will extend to others who deal favourably with him. Those who treat Abram well will be treated well by God. Those who will not will face God's anger. God is promising here to protect Abram. God will be looking after him. And he's going to foil the plans of those who come against Abram. God will see this blessing come through and no one is going to be able to stop it. But the last ripple, this one is massive. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What a promise that is. The final blessing extends from Abram to every group of people on the planet. 
This is a promise not just to one man, but a a promise that's going to bring blessing to every part of humanity. You see, Abram has been called to something big. He's been commanded by God to leave everything, to go to the land that God would show him, and that is not a small thing. But the blessing that God promises is far, far greater than any sacrifice that Abram is called to make. In fact, it is complete. It is a perfect promise. So far in the book of Genesis, the number seven has been hugely significant. It numbered the days of creation, culminating in the seventh day, the day of rest, the day of God's blessing the most blessed day. Well, in this new beginning for humanity, have a look at how many parts this promise contains and the climactic point where it ends. I will make your name great into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all people, the seventh one, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's a sevenfold blessing. In the midst of the snake infected game board that is the human condition, God has stuck one huge, perfect ladder. Yeah, one commentator wrote It is impossible to overestimate the importance of these words for biblical theology, for understanding your Bible. The promise of the land and these promises here are the foundation of the rest of the book of Genesis. We are going to be exploring these for the rest of this term and how they unfold and are expanded upon. In fact, this promise is the beginning of the rest of the Bible. The rest of the Bible will see the unfolding and expanding of this promise made to a wandering pagan 4,000 years ago. They will find their ultimate fulfilment when God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, dies on a cross to pay for the sins of the world and three days later, rise again to break the curse of death. A promise that then flows out to the world as the gospel of Jesus Christ is spread throughout the earth and trusted a blessing that will be perfectly and fully enjoyed when people of every nation and language, cleansed by the work of Jesus, gather in the presence of God for all of eternity in heaven. That's where these promises go. Now, I began by talking about opportunities of a lifetime, those moments where an opportunity is placed before you, an opportunity that will transform your life. Abram was presented with such an opportunity. Sure, it would mean a new beginning for him. He was leaving a lot behind. But it was the greatest of all ladders. Blessing for him and for the world. So what does Abram do? Beginning of verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. He took the opportunity of a lifetime. Abram left his father, he left his native land, he left his people and he took Sarai and he took Lot and he took everything he had and went to the land of Canaan. 
And when he arrives, he journeys through the land of Canaan until he gets to a place called Shechem. And there the writer of Genesis reminds us that Canaan wasn't an empty land. Look at verse 6. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The area around Shechem had been settled by this stage for more than 2,000 years. Shechem itself was one of the more prominent Canaanite cities of Abram's time. And so you can totally imagine, if you're picturing this, Abram and his nomadic entourage looking at all of these people at Shechem and going, now what? And yet it was there, right near this large Canaanite settlement, that Yahweh, the Lord, appears. And look what the Lord says in verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, his offspring, I will give this land. It was Canaanite now, but the time would come when it would belong to the descendants of Abram. This is the land that God showed him. This is the land that God would give him. And then Abram, the former moon-worshipping, moon-god-worshipping pagan from Mesopotamia, the nomad for, for his whole life in Canaan, is going to live in tents for all of that time, he actually builds something permanent. And it wouldn't be a monument saying Abram was here, but that someone else was there. Look at what it says there. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. Well, Abram moves from there south and he travels through the land and he sets up camp between Bethel and Ai and there he builds another altar to the Lord. But this time the writer adds, and he called on the name of the Lord. There, Abram set up a pattern, that's what that's describing, that he would follow for the rest of his days. He worshipped Yahweh the Lord. And there is something in that description of worship, isn't there, that he called on the name of the Lord? He called on him. See, that is an expression not just of acknowledgement, but that's an expression of dependence. Did you hear that? He calls on him. And what did he call on? The name of Yahweh, of the Lord, the God who had appeared to him, the God who had spoken to him, the God who commanded him and the God who had made him those great promises. That is the God that he would honour in worshipful dependence. Ultimately, opportunities of a lifetime require faith, don't they? You either take those opportunities because you think it's a ladder or you play safe and say, no thanks, just in case it might be a snake. Abram trusted that God wasn't deceiving him and so he did what he was told. He believed God and he said, I'll take the ladder, thanks. And this is where the Bible's story of redemption really begins. And the simplicity of Abram's response shows what is at the heart of redemption. It's just the gracious promises of God that you go, thanks to. 
That's the beginning of the story of redemption. 4,000 years later, we know the culmination of the story, the gracious promise of God revealed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, that is the opportunity of a lifetime that God presents to you and me to respond to. A ladder that doesn't merely advance us along the board of life, but takes us right to the victory at the very end. Far greater than the opportunity to be a famous TV cook. But can I say the stakes are much higher as well? You know, if Jamie Oliver played it safe that day, well, sure, he wouldn't be a world-famous celebrity chef that he is, but he'd still be a chef somewhere. But there is no safe for humanity. What we need to understand is that salvation is not a buyer's market, where if you decline the opportunity God presents, well, you can wait for another one, possibly better, a better offer in some way later on in the future. No, the reality is that humanity is in a pit. That is where the snake of our sin has put us and there is no fallback position. Salvation is found in one place only. There is only one ladder, Jesus Christ. It is all, fantastically all, or it is nothing, dreadfully nothing. It is life or it is death. It is heaven or it is hell. And so the biggest question, of course, is, got to be this one, hasn't it? Have you taken hold of this opportunity? God is offering it to you. Have you taken it? Have you said, yes, thank you? Have you left behind and, and, and embraced the promise? Look, God's done it all. That's the great thing about, just as with Abram, there's no qualifying to be done, no earning. It's completely a free gift, eternal life and the eternal blessing of God. But God does say, as he did with Abram, it's going to mean you live a new life. The promises are great, but they do come with a command. Leave and go to where I call you. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 9. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, oh Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. See, the first 12 chapters of Genesis show us that there's two worlds here. There's the world that is set in its rebellion and sin and is under God's curse. And then there is the new world that God offers, astounding blessing through trusting his promise. 
Abram wasn't given the option of being part of both. He had to uproot himself from the life he had lived in order to live the other one. We are not given the option of being a part of both either. Jesus has done it all for us. There's your promise. The ladder is there. God has presented us with the opportunity of life. But taking that opportunity means being prepared for earthly ambitions and desires to potentially slip away into the distance as we follow our new king, Jesus. Luke says in, Jesus says, I beg your pardon, in Luke chapter 9, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. But that's not just for the person who's making the decision to follow Jesus for the first time, you know. We wealthy Australian Christians need to hear that, don't we? Especially as we're about to come out of lockdown and we're going to have the opportunity at last to spend that wealth or to, um, or, or to enjoy the freedom that we're being opened up to and to just dive into all of that. It's easy to see our faith in Christ as Christians as just part of our life. It's easy to just pursue all the comforts and goals of this world and add God into the mix. But Jesus says, you've got to be ready to lose that life for me. Any part of it or even every part of it. Jesus says, it's my way or it is no way. That is the path of discipleship. That's what it was for Jesus. The reason he made those calls to people is because he had set his face to go to Jerusalem and the cross for us. See, that's the obedience of faith. So are there areas of your life where you are putting your hand to the plough but looking backwards? Places where Jesus' call on your life is being put on hold for the sake of maintaining your own priorities or comforts. What is his call for you? Where are you feeling that? Now, is is it actually it's time you put your hand up and served at your church and used all of those gifts that God has given you for him and for his people? Is it perhaps supporting ministry or world mission financially and using the material resources that he has given you for his kingdom? Is that where he's calling you? Because you maybe haven't been doing that. Could it even be the call to full-time ministry to actually change your career path or maybe for the mission field? Is it having the courage to put a relationship at risk to tell them about Jesus and the life that could be had in him? Jesus calls us to follow him with our whole hearts. It is a big call and it is uncompromising. But can I say it comes with wonderful promise. Hear what Jesus says in Luke 18. 
Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Just like Abram, as Christians, we need to have our eyes fixed on where God is calling us and not fixed behind us on what we're leaving behind and can never take with us anyway. Let me read to you from Hebrews 11. By faith, Abram, when Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Friends, God has promised and in Christ secured for us a glorious future. So let's trust that promise and live for him. Amen.